In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS Director of Teaching and Learning, Linda Waldman, speaks to Jason Arde and Heidi Mirza about their co-edited book, Dismantling Race in Higher Education, Racism, Whiteness and Decolonizing the Academy. It brings together both established and emerging scholars in the fields of race and education to explore what institutional racism in British higher education looks like in colorblind post-race times. The book asks difficult and challenging questions, including why black academics leave the system, why the curriculum is still white, how elite universities reproduce race privilege, and how black, Muslim, gypsy and traveler students are disadvantaged and excluded. I want to start by just saying that it's an enormous privilege for me to be here and to be talking to you. So thank you so much for giving up your time and for being here today to share this with us. Perhaps we could start by just telling me briefly why you wrote this book. Now, I know that's going to come up all the way through this conversation, but maybe we should just start with that and then we'll move on from there. Uh, To be honest, it it all came about by chance, if I'm being absolutely honest. Um, I went to a conference in, um, would have been 2014, at University of Edinburgh. So it was their annual uh, race equality conference. And... I came back to, uh, obviously came back to London. I can't remember, I was broke, I was working at Leeds at the time, I believe. And um, I got this email from a gentleman called Andrew James. And he was the commissioning editor at Palgrave at the time. And he'd said that um, he'd listened to my presentation that I'd done there. And he felt that I had a lot of potential to go on and do something really good. So I was kind of like, I thought it was a bit of a joke email. So I kind of emailed kind of saying, I emailed back saying like, Oh, this is really funny ha 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 and then and then we and then we met and then we and then he, he was real we met at british library and uh i couldn't believe it. i was completely in awe and then he kind of sat down and said this was the idea that he had for a book and that he would like us to do it was based off some ideas around the aiming higher runnymede report that um i had edited with uh professor claire alexander of university of manchester and then um and then yeah it kind of all took steam we got kind of people in and it was looking really good but it was one of those things where like you know i was kind of literally catching the wind as as it came you know i was really just doing what instinctively felt like the right thing to do and then like by absolute it was chance really because well it wasn't chance actually i'll tell you what happened um so you email the kind of people that you think might be interested because you fundamentally i was told that i need to email people that first contributed to the report and uh, there's only two people that got back to me, two people that got back to me. It's quite ironic if I mention their names. So no one kind of, no one emailed back. So at that point, like, I mean, who the hell is Jason Ardo, right? I'm, I'm nobody, so, um, and I'm nobody now, but I was more of a nobody then. And, uh, and uh, yeah, the only two people that got back were Heidi Sphere and Vicky Bolivar. And I remember I'd gone to football this, this Saturday, and I remember saying, on, it might have been a Sunday, and I said to uh, my mum, oh, do you know what? No one's flipping like getting back to me with this thing. Do you know what I mean? Like these people make me sick. I was like, <laughs> and um, and I remember saying it to um, a couple of friends of mine as well. And I I got back, I checked my emails, and and Heidi had copied everyone in and said I'd love to be involved. Now I'm thinking, oh my god, this is insane. About 20 minutes after that, Vicky kind of does the same thing. Anyway, fast forward to Monday, like everyone who had no interest, bearing in mind there was a like three week gap, right? Mm. 
they all like the emails like ping 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 ping, ping. <laughs> and it's like and like everyone wants to be involved and I'm like oh, okay because now the big hitters are here and like, everyone wants to be involved and that was my first experience of kind of realizing how fickle people are in academia but I also realized like the potency and the agency of having like two massive superstars like kind of say right you want to be part of what you're doing because then everyone kind of followed suit. So Heidi what what made you get involved? What made you reach out and phone Jason and say, let's do this? I just thought it was a brilliant, it was the right moment because mm-hmm. we had just had Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly the the um, the uh, Roads Must Fall movement in South Africa. It was just, yeah. you know, what we are seeing at this moment in time in 2020 with Black Lives Matter, it was already happening way back then. Mm. And I guess Jason, the Runnymede report from the, you know, that he had done with, with Claire before was at the, the right time for, for a book mm. that looked at decolonizing uh, higher education. Mm. It was a vision that we both had. So Jason brought with him these amazing young young scholars so he brought the new generation Mm, and mm. i used my network so we both used Mm, our networks mm. so we were able to get the 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 classic theoretical deep structural um theorists and on, on race and class and gender and the new generation of people that were talking more about critical race theory and microaggressions, um, the individual experiences. So that's what makes the book so mm. powerful, I think. And it's mm. used by vice chancellors, it's used by students, it's policymakers. It really has had a lot of traction mm. in the sector. Um, it's not what we set out to do, was it, Jason? It was, it was no. sort of like, hey, my mates, your mates. <laughs> you know? But now it's, it's, it's been reviewed as having the most eminent academics whose work is on institutional racism in academia. So it's been reviewed as this amazing collection of people, which is just brilliant that the two of you were able to bring those people together in that way. I will say this though, Linda, that there is something that Heidi said to me that if I don't have any tattoos, but if I could get something tattooed or I would tell someone in academia to get something tattooed on them, it would be this. Um, and, I, and I never forget this because it is probably the most important thing. That's one of the most important things that's been said to me in academia. I remember Heidi, there was a point in that book where the level wasn't where it needed to be. And Heidi said to me, look, Jason, there's something that you, it's really, really important that you remember this. This is going to be out there forever. Mm. Like forever. Like, mm. eat, the legacy. You know, yeah, you, mm. you, 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 ha- it has to be like perfect. And it's not that I ever did anything by half measures, but I really didn't understand that concept of why does it have to be so accurate? Because like, mm. you know, is there anything that's truly that accurate? And obviously like, I guess Heidi's foresight would be that it would probably, it could, potentially could have got to that level, but you don't think it will do, but you kind of think potentially it could be in the hands of policymakers. Mm. And, mm. and that's actually how it ended up. But at that mm. point from the humble origins from which it began, there's no way I would, I was thinking that. Um, yeah. and, and I remember saying, like, it's going to be out there forever. So, it, mm. you know, and, and book, those types of books have a shelf life of about 10, 10 to 15 years. So it has to be right. It could be seminal. That always, that always stuck with me. Um, and, it, and it still doesn't. Now I mm. use that as a premise for everything I do. It's going to be out there permanently. So it has mm. to be great. Whereas I would have just been happy. We've just been, you know, having a What was in interesting when, when Black Lives Matter um, erupted again with the murder of George Floyd what 
what happened is the uh, publishers were, you know, um, put it like out for free, didn't they? Electronically yeah. <laughs> through the Black Lives Matter, it's been downloaded um, a lot, you know, free yeah. downloads. And I think that's a really important gesture by us as the authors and the um, the publishers. Mm. So it has uh, a really um, grassroots access because academic texts tend not to be accessible mm. both financially mm. and in terms of the jargon mm. and I think one of the things the book does it talks about what actually decolonization is and what it means how it's experienced structural and personal experience of that and people um, I work a lot with you know very senior white people and they don't understand what decolonizing really means and I think the book fleshes that out um, you know it's about elitism it's about white spaces uh, spaces of privilege how that privilege is reproduced um, and how black scholars and academics experience it as a struggle um, mm. to be in those spaces so it's um yeah it, it's really been had a whole second life with the second round of black lives matter you know from the the origin that it first mm. was with the first um black lives matter movement and there's something about the book i mean one could ask why does this matter now but one could also say how could this not matter now and in fact at this time as you say coming together with these other these other processes, roads must fall, Black Lives Matter, really shaped it. But I think, I think um, the central idea of the book is so damning, I guess, for for academia that despite all attempts to be to not be racist, the institutions themselves are racist, and that means that students experience that bodily through a whole range. And the book really details the, a huge range of different forms of experiencing those exclusions even though they're in that space in that space of academia so i think it's not just incredibly profound but also comes at a time when one has a sense of frustration why didn't this come 20 years ago and yet maybe this couldn't have come 20 years ago no no maybe, maybe it couldn't have i mean um i mean to, to be fair i think that those texts were there i think that um academics of color we're probably not given the same exposure in terms of from publishing houses, mm. whether it be university presses mm -hmm. or commercial presses. Mm -hmm. um, I think the work was always there. Um, I just think that um, there's been a shift and it's not a shift as in because people want greater equality. I think there's, there's been an enforced shift by academics of colour to create mm -hmm. that space. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because of that, maybe that's where we've managed, not we, but the sector, Mm -hmm. academics of colour within the sector managed to create a space but I think the work was always there I mean if you mm -hmm. look at all of Heidi's work over the last I mean what there are probably five academics mm -hmm. of colour that are mm -hmm. particularly celebrated in the mm -hmm. UK and have that mm -hmm. international reach and and Heidi is is one of them so you know the bodies of knowledge and the canons of knowledge that we uphold within our within the academy has always decentered mm -hmm. that outstanding knowledge and I think Heidi made a fantastic point it, it's it's timing. Mm. I, th I think that's right. I just I just wonder if 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 the reach was bigger at this certain point in time, and and maybe the whole idea of being a post race society forces us to look more critically 
at the issues. Um, I don't know, Heidi, do you want to come in on this? I'll come in about the post-race thing, but mm. I just, in, in a minute, but I just want to pick up what you were saying about the, um, you know, the moment in time. Because mm. what, what has happened, and I'm from the generation in the 70s and the 80s, that we, higher education opened up mm -hmm. uh, in Britain. There was a Robbins report that, um, that expanded higher education. New universities were built, and I went to University of East Anglia and Sussex University as well. You know, these these are the new, you know, the new universities mm -hmm. of the moment, and they had a huge capacity, and we were um, we were enabled to go. There was no fees. This mm, was very yeah. very important. Yeah. We, I, I would not be in a professor, you know, um, if if there were fees. I just wouldn't have gone. So it's um, so so there was a lot of opportunity uh, for my generation, in a way, in you know, unreconstructed, very white, very privileged spaces. We moved, we moved together, and in fact, I did development studies at the University of East Anglia, um, and it was, I think, it was before your development studies in Sussex, it was the forerunner. And we used to go out and dig potatoes and put up water wheels and do mm. all sorts of crazy 70s hippie stuff in our flares <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in the fields of East Anglia. But one of the things um, that was amazing at that time is that South Africa uh, and Rhodesia was struggling for their liberation. Yeah. Um, and the freedom fighters, had come to Britain. That's correct. Mm. Via the trade union mm. route, very mm. often, were funded to go and do um, access courses in place like Ruskin's mm -hmm. Ruskin College in mm -hmm. Oxford, mm. which was a trade union college, and then come on into doing degrees mm. um, in yeah. development studies yeah. and other things. So, so my experience was just incredible. I met these freedom fighters. I yeah. was alongside and worked with mm. them um and the de you know decolonization is not something new it's something they were engaged in as activists we were struggling in britain against the overt racism of the national front and the nazi um agitators which we still have now in britain mm -hmm. and um it was uh a t it was built on my parents generation as sort of post-colonial um you know they in the in the 40s 50s and 60s um uh in the 20th century they they were fighting for independence in india in in, in the caribbean the pan-african movement so the scholars Fra france fanon and you know all the pan-african scholars had laid the foundations of mm. decolonial work that mm. jason and i are picking up you know in in the new millennial yeah so it was there is an arc, a long arc of history mm, which binds mm. us. And this book, I think, is powerful because um, it speaks across those generations mm. and is rooted in that um, deep tradition of decoloniality. I really, in the book, I really love um, um, Adam Cooper Elliott's essay on South Africa. You know, Jason, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's yeah. so vivid. And he's a geographer mm, mm. and he... Uh, he visits um, Rhodes University yeah. and he describes so vividly um, seeing the, you know, the white washed buildings with the black 
um, roads must fall um, paintings across yeah. the buildings. And, I, it, and then he, he switches to looking at the historical yeah. context mm. of why the university is there in the first place, because Grahamstown, where the university, Rhodes University is, and Rhodes, of course, we know it was the arc racist. Mm. Um, mm. That's why Rhodesia yeah. was Rhodesia, and, yeah. you know, mm. um, and, uh, and how they cleared the land. And I think he calls it, you know, um, a certain kind of terror was unleashed upon the people. Yeah. And he calls the chapters, uh, uh, chapter mm. heading, a certain kind of terror. Mm. And he talks, you know, so when we talk about decolonization in our universities now, it's rooted in terror and the extraction of land and labor uh, of the colonial past, which is still with us in the kind of racial capitalist economy that we mm. have now. And um, so I love I love that chapter because it's so vivid. It's such a good story because it, it kind of talks about how you can't use language and words to assume things are okay now, which is kind of what the book says. It says you can't just replace a few authors and think that you've done decolonization. You can't just say we'll have equality and think that that produces equality of experience. Um, Jason, I wonder if there's a story in the book that you'd like to pick out as well as having special meaning for you. I think um, the story that I'd pick out um, is probably because they're two of my dearest friends, but um, Michael Hobson and Stuart Wiggum. Um, and the reason I say that is because we're all from a PE background. And obviously, you know, we all used to work together at St. Mary's University in Twickenham. And they were good times. They were like the early, you know, the early part of the decade. Um, we'll come to the end of the decade, but you know, circa around 2012, 2013. And there's two kind of white um, academics who, who engage in physical education. They kind of did this kind of counter narrative about how, um, how I guess white academics engage in talking about race. So they used kind of P as their vehicle, but fundamentally it was about how white people talk to black students about race or ethnic minority students. And I remember that the reason why that chapter means is my favorite chapter by quite a long way is because I remember the first iteration of it. And I remember Heidi seeing this and kind of being like, you know, they've got a lot to do. Like, this is not, because it was written from a very like, white perspective. It's quite naive in, in, the, in the first reiteration. But um, they, they took all of that on board and, and they remodeled it and reworked it. And actually, um, like, factually speaking, that's one of the most downloaded chapters in the book. Mm. Um, and it is a fantastic piece of work, particularly around whiteness and the power and the privilege and the centrality of it as a construct and how that you know permeates pedagogical contexts and considerations and i just thought it was a masterful piece of writing and it just so happened that it ended up being two of my very closest friends but like it, it was a brilliant brilliant piece um and i think all the pieces in the book are amazing you know vicky bolivar's piece sarah ahmed's piece you know um Gary Loke's piece, mm. Heidi's Heidi's opening um, gambit or portal into the book. Like this, it's kind of proliferated with. I don't want to say the academic elite, but you've got kind of this hybrid of two generations of some, you know, some of the, the greatest, most prolific, most influential academics of our time in the last 30, 40 years, and then you have this new generation of people almost kind of taking the baton. So there's almost like a, 
symbolic kind of passing or handing down the baton. It, that, that was the intention, but that's actually how it, it's kind of ended up in terms of symmetry and balance. And yeah, and, and hopefully it can continue to be um, influential, but really a lot of the, the excellence in that book stands on the shoulders of fantastic contributors, mm. Um, you know, stands on the shoulders of, of Heidi's unbelievable leadership and guidance and brilliance. And um, yeah, I, I think in all aspects of life, you, you always need people who can add that fairy dust and make the difference. I always mm. say that the people that make the difference. And in this, and in this particular project, and many others, like many other people can test to, and obviously I can with this particular one. You know, Heidi made a difference, and, and mm. work with those unbelievably gifted um, authors and contributors. Yeah, it was definitely the privilege of a lifetime. You know, I don't think mm. I'll do anything that tops that. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. To, to I like I like Jason's chapter. <laughs> <laughs> I like Jason's chapter too. I like his, his way in which he attends his interviews and thinks about the people interviewing him. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because it's like a real life, it's like a real, as, as my daughter would say, it's a first world problem, right? It's a real, <laughs> it's a real thing to think about. I mean, for to be honest as well it's important i said for women of color it's worse like, mm. i mean the, the the height of my problems really is i can tie my hair back i can shave my beard which i would ordinarily would do i can wear trousers and a shirt and i'm not really going to be fetishizing the way that a woman of color would be it's completely it's completely mm. different um mm. and you feel that as soon as you well you see it i've sat on interview panels and seen the visceral reaction of of you know a group of you know white middle class men react to a woman of color coming through the room and i've also been on the other end of it where you, you've been there but it, it is important to highlight that distinction because it is mm. it is very different um and mm. it'd be remiss of me to not to not yeah. acknowledge. yeah so heidi um you've explained to us that a lot of people don't really understand what decolonization might mean and that it's not it's not the simple, in the book you say, it's not the simple replacing of authors for, in academia. Can I ask you to expand a little bit on what you think decolonization entails? In the book, we talk about decolonization as a, a thought revolution. Um, and that means um, it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. By that, I mean, you know, throwing the canon of white knowledge and um, um, Shakespeare and, you know, Durkheim and Weber and all the, the great white thinkers um, that have shaped our understanding of the world. It isn't that at all. And we accused a lot of doing that in terms of um, watering down um, knowledge and being Philistines about it and uh, rubbishing scholarship. It's very far from that. And one of the chapters in the book by um, uh, Michael Peters, um, he really fleshes out the kind of history of the decolonizing movement and, and the shifting of, um, of, of what whiteness really means. And it isn't in terms of whiteness isn't about individual people being white it's about the structures and the systems that that enable them to move with ease through the world mm -hmm. and it gives them a kind of normative space so mm -hmm. if you go into um oxford or cambridge um, as a white person you're just seen as part of part of the fabric the everyday life people will say hi and hello to you and just think 
you're just like me. But if you're a black person and you go into Oxford or Cambridge, you are actually looked at, questioned, uh, shaken down. Um, you are treated differently in your classes. The expectations will be different, maybe higher, maybe lower. Um, and there was a big campaign, which also um, Peters talks about in his in his chapter, um, called I am to Oxford and I am to Cambridge, where the students held placards up um, and the placards said things like, please don't touch my hair. No, my father is not a drug dealer. That's not how I afforded to come here. And mm, these sound yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. You know, no, I did not come here on an access mm. course. It sounds it sounds um you know like i said ridiculous or or, or, or or silly but actually those microaggressions speak a yeah. lot to how a space can be occupied and privilege certain people and marginalize and exclude others mm. so whiteness is about how systems perpetuate and privilege certain groups through the way that the law works through the um maybe the dinners that they have mm. where certain people are invited and not mm. others. So it's just the way um, that maybe the media talks about black people, the way that we are portrayed um, as less than as Muslim terrorists. I mean, one of the, the, the big um, successes in higher education has been how particularly Bangladeshi women have done well at school mm. and are now emerging into the higher education system within two generations. Yeah. It's just incredible. And the experience of Muslim women, particularly if they wear the hijab in higher education, has again been outlined in, in, in the book, both by Azizat and uh, Tanya Saeed, where they talk about, you know, the way they've been fetishized um, uh, and demeaned and not only that uh, the expectations the lower expectations that people have of them so they have to struggle against all of that and at the end of the day when they do leave with their degrees which they hard fought for degrees because um, remember some of their parents weren't even literate um, that when they do leave they don't get the jobs mm. either so there is this ethnic penalty so that is to do with you know the kind of normative space of whiteness and um, the way that you're excluded but also the structural racism um, that doesn't allow you it doesn't give you the merit uh, and the recognition for what you've achieved um, just because of who you are that's wrong thank you that's really helpful so it's i think it's partly about bodies making statements about bodies out of place and, and making that making people feel out of place because of their bodies. Jason, do you want to add to Heidi's very evocative description? No, I don't think there's anything to add. I think you know the sense of belonging is a real visceral mm. thing, and I mean across the intersection, whether it be gender, disability, you know, race, class, religion, uh, sexuality, the idea of walking into a space and feeling like you don't belong and actually that you know there's an exclusionary aspect of that mm. it's, it's quite powerful mm. um, and obviously that is compounded for particular types of people in, yeah. in in this particular case for black people in those kind of inherent white institutions 
it is compounded because all of those kind of I guess caveats around it you know fetishization kind of victimization marginalization all of those things kind of create this horrible crescendo which ends up being this perfect storm Mm. of just basically sitting on the periphery Mm. of that environment and obviously you can't thrive if you're on the periphery of anything yeah Um, Yeah. even though you pay a subscription to be part of that kind of environment Mm. in the first place so yeah I I think everything I concur with everything Heidi has said and and you know my hope is that we're moving we're, we're moving towards a different direction um and that's my belief whether that is actually true or not or that's kind of masqueraded behind my rose-tinted melancholic glasses I don't know but I I would hope so I would hope so and that's what Mm. I believe I think I think things Mm. are changing Mm. well I'd hope so too I hope I hope for all of our sakes that that is the case I mean that that takes us nicely into thinking about what what comes next or how can we use this book to shape the future um, in higher education and what is this can you think of ways that this book gives us new opportunities or helps us to reshape the future I, I guess I think the most important thing is that we've reached a seminal moment in our race relations history and I'm an idealist a hippie at heart and an idealist second and um, I think one thing that's really important is that we, um, we find a way of basically looking again for the potential in people to do the right thing at the right time. I think that's really important. And I think that this is the right time and it needs a collective set of actions to really penetrate and decenter and disarm racism. Apart from that, racism's always occupied a position on the margins and now it's almost in the center. Now, the thing with racism is it always has a shelf life. It has a timeline. You know, against the other intersections, the other intersections don't have a timeline, but racism has a timeline. And I think there are a lot of people, and rightly so, who probably believe that actually it's, you know, we're probably getting to the stage where racism's out of the public kind of vernacular and discourse and kind of visual stimulus. And I think actually, you know, reconceptualizing what white allyship looks like, reconceptualizing what institutions need to do and across the piece, not just within higher education in terms of that, you know, seasonal engagement, you know, and there has always been a seasonal engagement with racism. It's moving towards a more sustained, um, fiscally resourced um, engagement, which means that there's going to be, there's going to have to be fiscal and human um, investment in ensuring that you create something that's sustainable, long lasting, and can really penetrate um, the kind of change that we need to see and really unpick the kind of stitches of racism within that's been interwoven within the fabric of our academy. So I think that you have collective hearts and minds, and I still genuinely believe there are more people that want to see greater change than there are, than there are not. And with, with that, I, I do genuinely believe anything's possible. I think there's a generation of people um, that are meeting the people who've laid the foundations um, somewhere in the middle. And there's something really special happening. And I, and I do think that things are changing. Slow, they may be, but, but if we're going to kind of define change in a, not in a dictionary sense, but in a practical sense, and I do believe something is happening and it does feel a privilege to be part of that. And the idea is to, you know, it's kind of in, in with the all, the all Blacks jersey, I always think this is a really good concept. So with the All Blacks jersey, the idea is that you have this jersey which is over 100 years 
old, one of the greatest sports franchises of all time. And the idea is that the jersey doesn't belong to you. The idea is that you have this jersey and you enhance it. You make it better for the person that comes along. And I very much see the academy like that. We're custodians of it. And the idea is to leave it in a better state and in a better condition than when we inherited it. And I think that's really what you want to do. And I think that that is that something is happening. And I think that is happening right now. And I think we just all need to ensure that that endeavour is collective. And as long as it's collective and it doesn't fall too as it always has done, women of colour, you know, I think it's important that we relieve women of colour of that burden because that work has been unremunerated. It has come at a cost to them personally, professionally. Um, and there's been, in some cases, in many cases, a compromising of uh, mental state and wellness. So it's important that we all share that load um, and relieve women of that, women of colour of that burden because it's in, actually is in, in our collective best interests to not live in a racist society. I always find it interesting that people always feel like it's a, it's a black people's issue, or it's people of color's issue. It's, it's not, it's a us issue, yeah. it's all, all of us, so. I completely agree with that. Heidi, do you want to come in on that as well? Well, you know, we are in, as everyone says, unprecedented times with COVID-19 and, uh, and it's, and also the, the technological revolution, climate change, and the back. So the backdrop is this huge momentous moment in history, like the industrial revolution was. Um, and so the possibilities for change uh, and seeing a different kind of university and a different kind of higher education are momentous. So you now have, you know, students online teaching. We, the, the kind of old crusty you know cambridge and oxford harry potter world um that has symbolized british higher education it's it's acronistic it's old-fashioned it's like a dinosaur of 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 the past and so we can teach and learn through social media in new ways and different ways we don't need those buildings there's MOOCs, you know massive online courses mm -hmm. that would make higher education and the philosophy and a theory accessible to thousands and thousands of people so millions of people, billions of people so we don't need to gain access or desire entry into places that don't want us that treat us like second-class citizens and unless the establishment wakes up to that 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 thing that's happening at the moment which displaces whiteness and privilege as it has been constructed in the past um, i mean the thing with whiteness it's very comedian like and it changes all the time and will reconstitute itself i'm sure but the old-fashioned idea of higher education i think is up for grabs and i think our book really really you know dismantles as it says dismantles the fallacy of race and higher education it takes it down, it pulls it apart. It says, look at us, we're here. Mm. And look what mm. we're doing. Thank you very much, no thanks to you. And now, if this moment in time opens up new opportunities, we'll take them. We'll do it in new ways. And we're, we're smart enough, experienced enough, and you know, um, to do that. So move over, you know? So I think that higher education is gonna become more accessible. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I feel like 
I don't want to talk too much because I want to leave both of your words echoing in people's minds at the end of this interview. So I just want to say thank you both so, so much for your time and for your insights. I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book and I hope, as you say, it's going to lead to a better future for everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As we enter the third year of this podcast, we would really like to hear your feedback and suggestions for upcoming episodes. Please email us at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk or on Twitter with the hashtag IDS Between the Lines. <laughs>